Spartacus' daughter, The Life and Struggles of Rosa Luxemburg, a podcast by Karol Golewski. Episode 3. Shared Passions There is something fascinating about couples that share the same passion, especially when both parties are talented. I was going to say equally talented, but the cases that come to mind always involve one of the two parties as a visionary, when the other is only good, stroke very good, at what they're doing. Diego Rivera, the official painter of the Mexican government, who produced historical murals aimed at educating the people of Mexico on their history, and Frida Kahlo, who since her death has become a cultural icon and a role model for many female painters, when not many people remember Diego. I could also mention the sculptors Rodin and Camille Claudel, the former state artist with genius qualities, the latter so ahead of her time, she died in total anonymity. In both cases, the man eclipsed the woman during their lifetime, even though the woman was the strongest artist in the strictest sense of the term. In Rosa Luxemburg and Leo Yogishes's case, Rosa is the one who got recognition from her peers in her lifetime, and also the one who's remembered 100 years after her death as a figurehead of the early 20th century European social democratic movement. Maybe the comparison with two artist couples was not appropriate, and art is so subjective that it's difficult to assess who's talented and who's just good at what they're doing. Politics is another matter entirely, and in Rose's case, her speeches, her writing, her actions too, are what she was judged by in her lifetime. And in all of these, she was superior to Leo Yogishes. I think the reason I made the link with Rivera Kahlo and Rodin Claudel is because in all three couples, it was the woman who was the visionary. we left Rosa as she was about to flee Warsaw for Zurich, an important centre of Polish and Russian immigration at the time. Rosa didn't spend much time with the émigré Bohemia of Zurich, with its endless debates leading nowhere. She was boarding with the Lübecks, a German social democratic family 
who had left the country following the anti-socialist laws, and from the Lübecks she learned a lot about the German working-class movement, something that would prove useful later in life. She also enrolled at the University of Zurich in the Faculty of Philosophy, taking additional courses in the natural sciences and mathematics. The former, she would say, was a kind of relaxation away from political struggles. She eventually switched to political sciences, her true vocation, and economics. At the same time, Rosa was active in the Zurich working-class movement and took part in the intellectual life of the leaders of the political emigration, coming into contact with Russian Marxists. Leo Yogishes came to Zurich and into her life. He would become a lifelong companion, even after their split in 1907, and he would help her intellectual and political development. It was, by all accounts, a strange match. Rosa had a cheerful disposition and a stormy temperament, and was already displaying the marks of a genius, while Leo was all about hard work and discipline, and lived for duty to the point of pedantry, and demanded the same of others. He was ready to sacrifice himself and others for the cause. Four years older than Rosa, Leo came from a wealthy ethnic Polish-Jewish family established in Vilnius, Lithuania, then part of the Russian Empire. Unlike Rosa's family, there wasn't much left in Leo in the way of Jewish heritage. He spoke no Hebrew and only had a rudimentary grasp of Yiddish. From the age of 18, he had been committed to the anti-Tsarist cause, which led to a couple of arrests and short jail terms. To avoid conscription into the Tsar's army, Yogishes escaped to Zurich, and this is where he met young Rosa. The pair founded a political party, the Social Democratic Party of Poland and Lithuania, SDKPIL. It was an illegal organization whose newspaper, Sprawa Robotnica, or Worker Schools, was published in Paris. Leo had inherited some money which supported his revolutionary activities although he also kept a working-class job. Leo was a charismatic speaker, Rosa a talented writer who pushed him to write, although, as she later wrote, the mere thought of putting his idea on paper paralysed him. Although their collaboration would last till Rosa's death, their relationship would go through rough patches. There was a struggle within her, between her passion for Leo, her dream of a settled bourgeois life and the spark of revolution. Of course, she wrote, I'd be happy to have you in my home instead of being your guest, 
Of course, I'd like you to see how I live, and I'd like you to see everything besides. She wanted children, and wrote, We'll be in an empty house forever. More and more often, I seriously think of adopting a child. This would be possible only if we have a regular income and sufficient means. Will I be too old, then, to raise a child? Rosa was self-conscious of her appearance. She was unusually short, and she had a limp caused by a childhood illness. Rosa and Leo lived together in Zurich for a while, although Rosa never got the bourgeois home and family she longed for, something that was in direct contradiction with the revolutionary spirit and commitments to the life of a revolutionary woman. With Leo, she explored the boundaries of freedom of both body and mind and realized that her lack of freedom came as much from herself as from while Leo and their joint hatred of the bourgeois inflicted upon them both. She could not transcend the patriarchy. I have the accursed desire to be happy, she wrote to Leo, and would be ready day after day to haggle with my little portion of happiness with the foolish obstinacy of a pigeon. was a tension in their life together that neither of them was able to reconcile, walking the line between revolution and routine. Having her private life whilst in the centre of collective action proved difficult for Rosa, who, as a woman in this new socialist world, was trying to carve a space for her own voice to grow and be heard. Leo never understood her struggle as a revolutionary woman. There is so much in her letters to Leo that merits to be discussed further, so in the next few episodes, this is what we'll be doing, looking at her letters to Leo and realising the extent of her struggle to lead her life as a woman and as a revolutionary. For now, we'll end on this letter Rosa wrote to Leo in 1893 from Clarence, a little town on Lake Geneva. In this letter already, although at the start of their relationship, it's clear that Yogishus is playing the part of the busy man and she almost has to beg him to come and visit her. In later letters from Paris first and then from Berlin, her words will become stronger, more assertive. At that stage, she will finally be able to clearly state what it is she wants from their relationship. But in this first letter to Leo that survives to this day, she's still almost shy and tender. Clarence, Switzerland, March 20th, 1893, Monday. Tutia, my golden one. I just now, around 4pm, 
received your letter and the card. So, two more days of waiting. And I was already at the station today at 3pm and had the intention of going back again at 8.20 this morning. Today it's been quite grey ever since morning for the first time, but not a trace of rain. The whole sky is covered with clouds of different sizes and different shadings and has the look of a deep stormy sea. The lake glistens with smooth surface areas, the colour of steel. The mountains are shrouded in mist and look sad. And as for the Dent du Midi range, it's like seeing it through a fog. The air is mild and fresh and filled with the fragrance of apple trees and grasses. There is stillness all around and the birds chirp softly and steadily as if asleep. I'm sitting near the house in the grass under a tree by the small path that leads to the well. The grass is growing quite luxuriantly. There are flowers in abundance, especially those large yellow ones. The bees are buzzing around them in such massive numbers that I'm surrounded by continual and broken humming. There's also the smell of honey over there now, and then a huge bumblebee flies by, droning loudly. I'm in a melancholy mood and at the same time I'm in very good spirits because I love such quite pensive weather immensely. The only thing that's too bad is that it puts me in the mood for dreaming rather than for work. Zio, zio, hurry up. You won't even come on Wednesday, most likely. In the card you started to add the word all. That means what you already have in mind is Thursday. See here, zio, zio. We must get away from here as soon as possible. Enclosed, I'm sending you a letter from home, again. Today, a thick package of newspapers came also from your people in Villeneuve. So, there's still this evening to get through, and then all day tomorrow, and half a day more, the day after tomorrow. How empty it feels here all by myself. The truth is, we were together here for not even three weeks. We're still going out in a rowboat, aren't we? And taking a long hike in the mountains. Isn't that right? So hurry, my precious gold. As quick as you can. Back to yours. Don't forget to bring the book. Somebody's voice woke me up last night. I listened, but it was I myself who had been muttering. Awakened by my own voice, I realised I had been dreaming and I became aware of the sad reality that my Zio is far, far away and I am utterly alone. But the very next moment, someone was going loudly up the stairs. Still under the influence of the dream, I conjectured that it was you going up the stairs, that you had come on the last train at 1am. In the dream, I changed the train schedule a little and that in order not to wake me you had gone to your room upstairs to sleep, planning to surprise me in the morning. I smiled with satisfaction and went back to sleep. Today I got up early and flew upstairs to you, and came to see that my nighttime conjectures were only a dream. So if you don't arrive Wednesday, I'll come bounding to Geneva on the early train. You'll see. Thank you.